You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the scripture reading this afternoon. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 22 to 26. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Our text this afternoon are verses 20 to 27 of Mark chapter 3. Let's read that together. Then Jesus entered a house. Again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus. In the Athanasian Creed, we confess that a right knowledge of Jesus Christ is essential for salvation. Getting his identity right is a matter of eternal life and death. We confess this is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. With the creed, we confess that part of the Catholic faith is that he is the one Christ, the Son of God, equally both God and man. It's crucially important to know and believe the right understanding of who our Savior is. The identity of Jesus Christ is one of the fundamental questions addressed by the gospel according to Mark. That's why the book begins with the title, The Beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No other gospel begins with such an assertion 
of who Jesus is. Mark, right off the bat, insists that he is the Son of God, the Christ. And as the Gospel unfolds, we see further that he is the suffering Son of God. The one who can only be understood in terms of his suffering. And ironically, his descent into suffering includes the chronic misunderstandings of his true identity. This afternoon, as we continue our series on Mark, we come to a passage that centers around this theme of misunderstanding. Two groups of people fail to grasp who he is and what he's come to do. We'll see this afternoon that the Lord Jesus was misunderstood by family and foe alike. And we'll also see the challenging message that this passage presents to us today. Well, the scene before us is still in Capernaum. Jesus entered into a house, we're told. Probably his own house, his own house in that city. And soon enough, a crowd gathered around him once again. Word got around that he was back. It was nearly impossible for him to get away from the crowds. It appears that most of the time he wanted, in fact, to be with the crowds. That's where ministry takes place, with people. The problem was that there were so many people, and they stayed for so long, that it became impossible to even eat. It was impossible to prepare any food in the house, and it was also impossible to get out and and to buy some food. With verse 21, we find out that Jesus' family hears about this situation. They left Nazareth and they traveled to Capernaum. We're told that they wanted to take charge of him. They believed that he'd gone insane. And they were going to take him take him into a sort of protective custody. And we should ask the question, why? I don't think the answer is immediately obvious. Why did they think that he was out of his mind? The text doesn't directly tell us. And so we're left to work it out from the broader context of Scripture. John 7 verse 5 gives us some help here. We read there that, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him, at least not before his ascension. We go to Acts 1, verse 14, we find out that later on, they did, in fact, believe in him. But at this point, his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, they did not believe in him. They didn't believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Instead, They thought he was insane. He was crazy for allowing the crowds to box him in to such an extent that he and his disciples could no longer even eat, take care of their most basic needs. To them, this may have appeared as a sort of fanatical ego trip. Jesus was destroying himself for the sake of his ego. Imagine being so misunderstood by those closest to you. The brothers he grew up with had no idea what he was really about, what he really stood for, who he was. They didn't recognize him as the Son of God. 
You see, loved ones, this is part of his shame and suffering. His descent into humiliation. He endured the pain and the frustration of being misunderstood for you. What you're witnessing here in this passage is part of your redemption. His work for you. Here he is, your Savior, the one whose family thought he was out of his mind. And as we see Jesus here, revealed in this passage, we remember, first of all, that we have union with him. We are united to him by faith. And that means that we will share in his sufferings in this life to a certain degree. But we also need to remember that he is a sympathetic high priest for us. He endured suffering and the frustrations of life, including being misunderstood by those closest to him. He knows and understands. When you're faced with frustration at being misunderstood, despite your best intentions and efforts, know that you have a sympathetic Savior in Jesus Christ. You can bring your frustrations to Him. And He understands. Not only that, He'll also give you strength to get through it. Through faith, which is your your lifeline to Christ, and through His Spirit and Word, the, the instruments that Christ uses to help us, He'll bring you through difficulties. Now when we get to verses 31 to 35... We're going to consider in more detail the relationship between Christ and his family. At the end of verse 21, his family is on their way to take charge of him. And they don't arrive, it appears, until verse 31. In the meantime, a different group of people appear on the scene. The teachers of the law. Now, we've met them before in Mark's Gospel, in our series of sermons. They've come down from Jerusalem, and like before, they've been shadowing Jesus for some time, like some kind of rabbinical paparazzi. They've watched what he's been doing and listened to what he's teaching. Along the way, they've asked a few snarky questions, and they've tried to turn Jesus' disciples against him. The conflict between Christ and these Jewish leaders is slowly continuing to intensify. Before we look closely at exactly what it was they said, let's note a couple of things. First of all, what drives these men? It's always an important question to ask. What is in their hearts? Of course, no one but God can look into hearts. And only God can examine and he can rightly identify infallibly all the motives. But in this case, God has done that. He's given us an answer. He has identified the motives of these men. Matthew 27, verse 18, tells us that the Jewish leaders wanted to destroy Jesus because of envy. They were out to get him because he drew the people away from them and their teaching. Their concern was not the truth of the word of God, 
but rather their own personal prestige and power. Their pride. With somebody like John the Baptist, we see a completely different way of thinking. In John 3, verse 30, we hear John saying, He, referring to Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. You see, John understood the nature of the kingdom of heaven. The teachers of the law, they didn't. Why not? Well, because their eyes were blinded to the word of God. The second thing we need to consider is that the Jewish leaders were sinning against their better knowledge. John 3, Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus by night. Remember that he was a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin. You know the very first thing he said to Jesus? Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Those Jewish leaders, they knew that the Lord Jesus was a servant of God. Though they might not admit it openly with their lips and publicly, they knew that he was on God's side. And that made their sin of envy, that made their sin of trying to destroy Jesus that much more wicked and heinous. Sinning in ignorance is one thing. But when you know better, you're that much more to blame. James 4.17 says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And the Lord Jesus said in Luke 12.48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Those two considerations bring us forward to look at what they said, the Jewish leaders. They had probably heard and gotten wind of what Jesus' family and others were saying about his mental health. And they would have been only too happy to hear those words about their arch enemy. And they piggybacked on those derogatory comments with their own insults. They threw two accusations his way. First, that he was possessed by Beelzebul. Now, the exact meaning of Beelzebul isn't clear. It could mean Lord of the Flies, Lord of the House, or even Lord of the Dung Pile. Whatever its meaning, who it's meant to speak about is clear enough. It's meant as a reference to Satan. And calling him Beelzebul was a a way of insulting him. The Jewish leaders wanted to express their utter revulsion for Satan and everything he stands for. And they did this not by calling him Satan, but by calling him Beelzebul. The second accusation was that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now this reference to exorcism here in Mark seems to just come out of the blue. But if we look at the parallel passages of Luke and Matthew, we discover that immediately before this, the Lord Jesus had cast a demon out of a deaf and mute man. 
and healed him. With this accusation, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. The teachers of the law were saying that, in fact, Jesus and Satan were allies. Satan gave him the power to do these mighty miracles. And to make matters worse, so they said, Jesus actively looked to Satan for that power. The first accusation that Christ was possessed by Satan, that's answered in verses 28 to 30. We're going to get to that next week. It's the second accusation that gets the focus in verses 23 to 27. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Jesus is a co-worker of Satan, they said. Well, verse 23 says that Jesus called them, those who were saying this, and spoke to them in parables. He directly confronts those who were saying these malicious things about him. Now, this is the first time that we find Jesus speaking in parables in the Gospel of Mark. So we have to consider the purpose of parables and why Christ begins using them at this time. There's a shift here, and that shift tracks with the development of the conflict between Christ and the Jewish leaders. As the conflict intensifies, he moves from responding directly to responding with parables. Now some people look at this and they see this shift to parables as a way that Jesus is is making one last-ditch effort to try and persuade the Jewish leaders of his identity. They say that the parables are there to make things easier for the scribes and Pharisees. Sounds nice but it directly conflicts with what we read in Mark 4 and Matthew 13 about the purpose of parables. According to Scripture, parables had a twofold purpose. First of all, to lay open the secrets of the kingdom of heaven for believers. And second, to further harden the hearts of unbelievers. So here in Mark 3, when Christ begins to speak in parables, this twofold approach, we need to keep it in mind. And it's a purpose that fits with the preaching of Christ in general, now and then. To some, it's the aroma of life. And to others, it's the aroma of death. The question that comes to Christ here is then and now is, which is it going to be for us? Christ calls us to hear the word in faith and believe it. He asks, how can Satan drive out Satan? And this first question, initial question, highlights the problem with the thinking of the teachers of the law. Because of the hardness of their hearts towards Jesus, they can't grasp a basic common sense idea. Satan is not going to work against himself. And did you notice that the Lord Jesus changed the wording here a little bit? The teachers of the law were speaking about driving out demons. But Jesus 
talks about driving out Satan. For his intents and purposes, the demons, plural, are a manifestation or they are representative of Satan, singular. Satan simply means enemy. It's a Hebrew word that means enemy. And so the demons are part of the army, the enemy army under Satan's control. They are collectively the enemy. And the enemy is not going to work against himself if he can help it. The Lord Jesus continues this line of reasoning by speaking about a kingdom and then about a house. If those are divided against themselves, common sense and logic, well, they tell us that they're not going to be able to stand. There's nothing difficult here. Organizations, persons, and things, they need to have a unified purpose and work towards a common goal if they're going to continue to exist. When they're divided, they're not going to stand for very long. Reasoning here is so simple that even a child can understand it. Imagine, imagine a soccer team. Imagine bizarre soccer team. The goalkeeper brought along his Game Boy, and he's sitting in net and he's playing his Game Boy, not paying any attention to anything that's going on around him. The defense have decided to try and score on their own net. The midfielders, well, they're tired, and they decided to take a nap. And the forwards, well, they decided to go out for pizza. That's not a soccer team, is it? That's chaos. It would be insane. Why even bother playing? Why even bother come to the field? No one is working towards the same goal. It's simple to understand. Well, verse 26 has some different language, but the basic thought is exactly the same. If Satan rises up against himself, if there's civil war and rebellion in the satanic army, and it's divided, then it's not possible for Satan to stand. Instead, Christ says, his end has come. It's decisively over for him. You know, there's a deep and heavy irony in those words. Because Satan does have an end. He is rising up against Jesus at this very moment here in Mark. He's been trying to destroy him since his birth. And if we think about it, even before that. And after this event, he's going to continue to try and destroy him. He doesn't think that he's actually rising up against himself by rising against Jesus. Really, that's what's happening. In trying to destroy Jesus, he's going to ensure that his end has come. Satan is done for. And there's nothing he can do about it. Nevertheless, Satan wouldn't self-consciously oppose himself. And that's the point that the Lord Jesus is trying to drive home with these Jewish leaders. Finally, Christ paints a picture of a home invasion. These sorts of things, they, they happen in ancient times just like they happen today. 
When you break into a house and people are home, you have to do something about the people. Otherwise, you're not going to get the goods. Some instances, perhaps you can just make a threat and people will cower and they'll let you do your dirty business. But what if you bust into a house where the owner is six foot four and full of muscles? Then you'd better be ready to subdue him somehow and tie him up. Once that's done, then you'll have free reign to rob and steal as you please. What's the point here? Well, Satan is the strong man. And he's been tied up. Christ is robbing him blind through his exorcisms and through everything else good that he's been doing, including his preaching and teaching. He's plundering and taking away everything he has. And Satan wouldn't cooperate with that sort of thing. That's why he had to be tied up. A normal homeowner in his right mind wouldn't cooperate with somebody who violently invaded his house. And this image of someone taking plunder from a strong man's house, it seems to come from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 49. Isaiah prophesied that indeed God would take back what belongs to him. If we see it in that light, the picture in Mark 3 is not really the picture of a criminal act, but a rescue mission. Much like Abraham going out to rescue Lot and his family from Cador Leomer and his allies in Genesis 14. The strong man has what, what really doesn't belong to him. And the one breaking in is justified in doing this. The Lord Jesus is justified. He is bringing freedom to the captives. At the same time, these words remind us to not ever underestimate the power of Satan. He is a strong man. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we're told that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We live in a world which minimizes or even denies the existence of the devil and his forces. I think it's a laughable idea. There would be a literal, personal Satan. However, the Bible insists that we have a fierce and powerful enemy who is very real. Satan will take advantage of everything and anything to take us down if he can. He wants to devour us, literally to drink us up. Loved ones, even though we hate him, we must recognize his power. At the same time, Christ is revealed to us here as one who is stronger, much, much stronger. The battle is not between equals. Christ has the power. He has the power to subdue this strong man and tie him up. We may not be able to do it, but Christ can. And so when faced with the attacks of the devil and his forces, what do we need to do? We need to look to faith in 
with faith to Christ. To look in faith to Christ. Just as the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Christ has conquered. And He will conquer. The strong man is not only tied up, he's not only limited in what he can do, but he's going to be thrown into a lake of fire at the end of the age. Jesus Christ will throw him in there. Brothers and sisters, though that through this text, our God wants us to be clear about who Christ is. He's the Son of God who suffered for us. He was misunderstood by his earthly family and by his enemies. His foes, they painted him as one in league with Satan himself. And these accusations, what they did is they propelled him yet further along the trajectory of suffering for you. These misunderstandings, they pushed him towards the cross where Satan would meet his end, where the serpent's head would be crushed and we would be saved. You know, it's easy to read this text and to look down our self-righteous noses at the teachers of the law and, and Jesus' family. But when we consider why all this happened, we should become more cautious and humble. Because after all, it was your sin, my sin, that brought Jesus this humiliation. It was our sin that put Him on the cross. It was all the times that we have misunderstood who Jesus is and what He's about. All the times we have misunderstood both ignorantly and deliberately about how faith in Him and our union with Him should mold and shape our lives. Let's not deceive ourselves. This text exposes our own shortcomings. Or perhaps we would never say that Jesus is crazy, or that he's possessed by Beelzebub, or that he did his miracles by the power of the devil. But we have our own misunderstandings and distortions. Every single one of us. Thankfully, thanks be to God, we have a Savior who gave Himself for our sins. Through His blood, through His suffering and obedience, we are forgiven for all our misunderstandings. As part of His saving work, He is also our chief prophet and teacher. And He doesn't leave us in our misunderstandings. He takes us further. He corrects our misunderstandings. And the way He does that is with His Word. As we read His Word and as we hear it preached, as we study it, the Holy Spirit corrects what is faulty or what is lacking in our understanding. He guides us into all the truth of who Christ really is and, and all the riches that we have in Him. Since Christ works through His Spirit and Word, it's important that we regularly study His Word carefully. I'd like to echo 
what my co-pastor said this morning from the pulpit, what the study of God's Word in this new study season that's coming upon us. If you don't already regularly attend a Bible study group here in our congregation, let me encourage you right now to find one. Now, we can certainly read and we can study the Bible on our own, but there's an added benefit to studying the Bible together. Together we can benefit from the insights and the wisdom of others in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. If you're new to our congregation, or even if you've been here for some time, and you don't have currently a Bible study group that you're regularly attending, you can speak to someone on our home mission committee, and they can suggest one that's appropriate for you. Brother Kevin Leinhorst, who's one of our deacons, he's sitting up here in the second bench from the front, he's uh, agreed that he would be happy to, to help you to find a Bible study group that would be appropriate for you. So please, I urge you to speak with him if you don't have a Bible study group that you're going to. Loved ones, nothing, absolutely nothing, is more important in this world than knowing Jesus Christ and knowing him rightly. We need to understand who he is from his word and through his spirit. Let's now pray for God's help in that. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ in your word. Help us to know him rightly and to understand who he is and what he's about. Help us to believe in him each and every day. We pray that you would guide us by your spirit and word into all the truth that you would have us know. Please correct our misunderstandings. Fill in the gaps and teach us. Illumine our hearts and minds and help our unbelief. We also pray that you would protect us from the devil and his forces. Teach us with your word to resist him and to stand firm in our faith. And Father, we eagerly pray for the great day of our Lord Jesus to come quickly. That day when Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. We pray in Christ our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.